Day 3 of Totus Tuus' Novena, with quotes from John Paul II's encyclical, Evangelium Vitae. Faced with the countless grave threats to life present in the modern world, one could feel overwhelmed by sheer powerlessness. Good can never be powerful enough to triumph over evil. At such times, the people of God, and this includes every believer, is called to profess with humility and courage its faith in Jesus Christ, the Word of Life. The Gospel of Life is not simply a reflection, however new and profound, on human life. Nor is it merely a commandment aimed at raising awareness and bringing about significant changes in society. Still less is it an illusory promise of a better future. The Gospel of Life is something concrete and personal, for it consists in the proclamation of the very person of Jesus. Jesus made himself known to the Apostle Thomas, and in him to every person, with the words, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. This is also how he spoke of himself to Martha, the sister of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is the Son who from all eternity receives life from the Father, and who has come among men to make them sharers in this gift. I came that they may have life, and have it abundantly. Through the words, the actions, and the very person of Jesus, man is given the possibility of knowing the complete truth concerning the value of human life. From this source, he receives, in particular, the capacity to accomplish this truth perfectly, that is, to accept and fulfill completely the responsibility of loving and serving, of defending and promoting human life. In Christ, the gospel of life is definitively proclaimed and fully given. This is the gospel which, already present in the revelation of the Old Testament, and indeed written in the heart of every man and woman, has echoed in every conscience from the beginning, from the time of creation itself, in such a way that, despite the negative consequences of sin, it can also be known in its essential traits of human reason. As the Second Vatican Council teaches, Christ perfected revelation by fulfilling it through his whole work of making himself present and manifesting himself. Through his words and deeds, his signs and wonders, but especially through his death and glorious resurrection from the dead and final sending of the Spirit of Truth. Moreover, he confirmed with divine testimony what revelation proclaimed, that God is with us to free us from the darkness of sin and death and to raise us up to life eternal. Hence, with our attention fixed on the Lord Jesus, we wish to hear from him once again the words of God and meditate anew on the gospel of life. 
The deepest and most original meaning of this meditation on what Revelation tells us about human life was taken up by the Apostle John in the opening words of his first letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. In Jesus, the word of life, God's eternal life is thus proclaimed and given. Thanks to this proclamation and gift, our physical and spiritual life also in its earthly phase, acquires its full value and meaning. For God's eternal life is in fact the end to which our living in this world is directed and called. In this way the gospel of life includes everything that human experience and reason tell us about the value of human life, accepting it, purifying it, exalting it, and bringing it to fulfilment. The fullness of the gospel message about life was prepared for in the Old Testament, especially in the events of the Exodus, the centre of the Old Testament faith experience. Israel discovered the preciousness of its life in the eyes of God. When it seemed doomed to extermination because of the threat of death hanging over all its newborn males, the Lord revealed himself to Israel as its saviour, with the power to ensure a future to those without hope. Israel thus comes to know clearly that its existence is not at the mercy of a pharaoh who can exploit it at his despotic whim. On the contrary, Israel's life is the object of God's gentle and intense love. Freedom from slavery meant the gift of an identity, the recognition of an indestructible dignity, and the beginning of a new history, in which the discovery of God and the discovery of self go hand in hand. The Exodus was a foundational experience and a model for the future. Through it, Israel comes to learn that whenever its existence is threatened, it need only turn to God with renewed trust in order to find in Him effective help. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Thus, in coming to know the value of its own existence as a people, Israel also grows in its perception of the meaning and value of life itself. This reflection is developed more specifically in the wisdom literature, on the basis of daily experience of the precariousness of life and awareness of the threats which assail it. Faced with the contradictions of life, faith is challenged to respond. More than anything else, it is the problem of suffering which challenges faith and puts it to the test. How can we fail to appreciate the universal anguish of man when we meditate on the book of Job? The innocent man, overwhelmed by suffering, is understandably led to wonder. Why is light given to him that is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death? But it comes not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures. But even when the darkness is deepest, 
faith points to a trusting and adoring acknowledgement of the mystery. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Revelation progressively allows the first notion of immortal life, planted by the Creator in the human heart, to be grasped with ever greater clarity. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's mind. This first notion of totality and fullness is waiting to be manifested in love and brought to perfection by God's free gift through sharing in His eternal life. The experience of the people of the covenant is renewed in the experience of all the poor who meet Jesus of Nazareth. Just as God, who loves the living, had reassured Israel in the midst of danger, so now the Son of God proclaims to all who feel threatened and hindered that their lives too are a good to which the Father's love gives meaning and value. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. With these words of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus sets forth the meaning of his own mission. All who suffer because their lives are in some way diminished, thus hear from him the good news of God's concern for them, and they know for certain that their lives too are a gift carefully guarded in the hands of the Father. It is above all the poor to whom Jesus speaks in his preaching and actions. The crowds of the sick and the outcasts who follow him and seek him out find in his words and actions a revelation of the great value of their lives and of how their hope of salvation is well founded. The same thing has taken place in the Church's mission from the beginning. When the Church proclaims Christ as the one who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, she is conscious of being the bearer of a message of salvation, which resounds in all its newness, precisely amid the hardships and poverty of human life. Peter cured the cripple who daily sought alms at the beautiful gate of the temple in Jerusalem, saying, I have no silver and gold, but I give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. By faith in Jesus, the author of life, life which lies abandoned and cries out for help, regains its self-esteem and full dignity. The words and deeds of Jesus and those of his church are not meant only for those who are sick or suffering or in some way neglected by society. On a deeper level, they affect the very meaning of every person's life in its moral and spiritual dimensions. Only those who recognize that their life is marked by the evil of sin can discover in an encounter with Jesus the Saviour the truth and the authenticity of their own existence. Jesus himself says as much. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. But the person who, like the rich landowner in the Gospel parable, thinks that he can make his life secure by the possession of material goods alone, is deluding himself.
life is slipping away from him, and very soon he will find himself bereft of it, without ever having appreciated its real meaning. Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In Jesus' own life, from beginning to end, we find a singular dialectic between the experience of the uncertainty of human life and the affirmation of its value. Jesus' life is marked by uncertainty from the moment of his birth. He is certainly accepted by the righteous, who echo Mary's immediate and joyful, Yes. But there is also, from the start, rejection on the part of a world which grows hostile and looks for the child in order to destroy him. A world which remains indifferent and unconcerned about the fulfilment of the mystery of this life entering the world. There was no place for them in the inn. In this contrast between threats and insecurity on the one hand, and the power of God's gift on the other, there shines forth all the more clearly the glory which radiates from the house at Nazareth and from the manger at Bethlehem. This life which is born is salvation for all humanity. Life's contradictions and risks were fully accepted by Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The poverty of which Paul speaks is not only a stripping of divine privileges, but also a sharing in the lowliest and most vulnerable conditions of human life. Jesus lived this poverty throughout his life until the culminating moment of the cross. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. It is precisely by his death that Jesus reveals all the splendour and value of life, inasmuch as his self-oblation on the cross becomes the source of new life for all people. In his journeying amid contradictions and in the very loss of his life, Jesus is guided by the certainty that his life is in the hands of the Father. Consequently, on the cross he can say to him, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, that is, my life. Truly great must be the value of human life if the Son of God has taken it up and made it the instrument of the salvation of all humanity. Life is always a good. This is an instinctive perception and a fact of experience, and man is called to grasp the profound reason why this is so. Why is life a good? This question is found everywhere in the Bible, and from the very first pages it receives a powerful and amazing answer. The life which God gives man is quite different from the life of all other living creatures, inasmuch as man, although formed from the dust of the earth, is a manifestation of God in the world, a sign of his presence, a trace of his glory. This is what St. Irenaeus of Lyon 
wanted to emphasize in his celebrated definition. Man, living man, is the glory of God. Man has been given a sublime dignity, based on the intimate bond which unites him to his Creator. In man, there shines forth a reflection of God himself. The book of Genesis affirms this when, in the first account of creation, it places man at the summit of God's creative activity, as its crown, at the culmination of a process which leads from indistinct chaos to the most perfect of creatures. Everything in creation is ordered to man, and everything is made subject to him. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing. This is God's command to the man and the woman. A similar message is found also in the other account of creation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. We see here a clear affirmation of the primacy of man over things. These are made subject to him and entrusted to his responsible care. Whereas for no reason can he be made subject to other men and almost reduced to the level of a thing. In the biblical narrative, the difference between man and other creatures is shown above all by the fact that only the creation of man is presented as the result of a special decision on the part of God, a deliberation to establish a particular and specific bond with the Creator. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. The life which God offers to man is a gift by which God shares something of himself with his creature. Israel would ponder at length the meaning of this particular bond between man and God. The book of Sirach, too, recognizes that God, in creating human beings, endowed them with strength like his own and made them in his own image. The biblical author sees as part of this image not only man's dominion over the world, but also those spiritual faculties which are distinctively human, such as reason, discernment between good and evil, and free will. He filled them with knowledge and understanding, and showed them good and evil. The ability to attain truth and freedom are human prerogatives inasmuch as man is created in the image of his Creator, God who is true and just. Man alone, among all visible creatures, is capable of knowing and loving his Creator. The life which God bestows upon man is much more than mere existence in time. It is a drive towards fullness of life. It is the seed of an existence which transcends the very limits of time. For God created man for incorruption, and made him in the image of his own eternity. The Yahwist account of creation expresses the same conviction. This ancient narrative speaks of a divine breath which is breathed into man so that he may come to life. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The divine origin of the spirit of life 
explains the perennial dissatisfaction which man feels throughout his days on earth. Because he is made by God, and bears within himself an indelible print of God, man is naturally drawn to God. When he heeds the deepest yearnings of the heart, every man must make his own the words of truth expressed by St. Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. How very significant is the dissatisfaction which marks man's life in Eden, as long as his sole point of reference is the world of plants and animals. Only the appearance of the woman, a being who is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and in whom the Spirit of God the Creator is also alive, can satisfy the need for interpersonal dialogue so vital for human existence. In the other, whether man or woman, there is a reflection of God himself, the definitive goal and fulfilment of every person. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him, the psalmist wonders. Compared to the immensity of the universe, man is very small, and yet this very contrast reveals his greatness. You have made him little less than a god, and crown him with glory and honour. The glory of God shines on the face of man. In man, the Creator finds his rest, as St. Ambrose comments with a sense of awe. The sixth day is finished, and the creation of the world ends with the formation of that masterpiece which is man, who exercises dominion over all living creatures, and is, as it were, the crown of the universe, and the supreme beauty of every created being. Truly we should maintain a reverential silence, since the Lord rested from every work he had undertaken in the world. He rested then in the depths of man. He rested in man's mind and in his thought, after all, he had created man endowed with reason, capable of imitating him, of emulating his virtue, of hungering for heavenly graces. In these his gifts God reposes. Who has said, Upon whom shall I rest, if not upon the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word? I thank the Lord our God, who has created so wonderful a work, in which to take his rest. Unfortunately, God's marvellous plan was marred by the appearance of sin in history. Through sin, man rebels against his Creator and ends up worshipping creatures. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. As a result, Man not only deforms the image of God in his own person, but is tempted to offences against it in others as well, replacing relationships of communion by attitudes of distrust, indifference, hostility, and even murderous hatred. When God is not acknowledged as God, the profound meaning of man is betrayed, and communion between people is compromised. In the life of man, God's image shines forth anew, 
and is again revealed in all its fullness at the coming of the Son of God in human flesh. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. He is the perfect image of the Father. The plan of life given to the first Adam finds at last its fulfilment in Christ. Whereas the disobedience of Adam had ruined and marred God's plan for human life and introduced death into the world, the redemptive obedience of Christ is the source of grace poured out upon the human race, opening wide to everyone the gates of the kingdom of life. As the Apostle Paul states, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. All who commit themselves to following Christ are given the fullness of life. The divine image is restored, renewed and brought to perfection in them. God's plan for human beings is this, that they should be conformed to the image of his Son. Only thus, in the splendour of this image, can man be freed from the slavery of idolatry, rebuild lost fellowship, and rediscover his true identity. The life which the Son of God came to give to human beings cannot be reduced to mere existence in time. The life which was always in him, and which is the light of men, consists in being begotten of God, and sharing in the fullness of his love. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Sometimes Jesus refers to this life which he came to give simply as life, and he presents being born of God as a necessary condition if man is to attain the end for which God has created him. Unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To give this life is the real object of Jesus' mission. He is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Thus can he truly say, He who follows me will have the light of life. At other times, Jesus speaks of eternal life. Here the adjective does more than merely evoke a perspective which is beyond time. The life which Jesus promises and gives is eternal because it is a full participation in the life of the Eternal One. Whoever believes in Jesus and enters into communion with him has eternal life because he hears from Jesus the only words which reveal and communicate to his existence the fullness of life. These are the words of eternal life which Peter acknowledges in his confession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus himself, addressing the Father in the great priestly prayer, declares what eternal life consists in. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
to know God and his Son is to accept the mystery of the loving communion of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit into one's own life, which even now is open to eternal life because it shares in the life of God. Eternal life is therefore the life of God himself and at the same time the life of the children of God. As they ponder this unexpected and inexpressible truth which comes to us from God in Christ, believers cannot fail to be filled with ever new wonder and unbounded gratitude. They can say in the words of the Apostle John, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here the Christian truth about life becomes most sublime. The dignity of this life is linked not only to its beginning, to the fact that it comes from God, but also to its final end, to its destiny of fellowship with God in knowledge and love of Him. In the light of this truth, St. Irenaeus qualifies and completes his praise of man. The glory of God is indeed man, living man, but the life of man consists in the vision of God. Immediate consequences arise from this for human life in its earthly state, in which, for that matter, eternal life already springs forth and begins to grow. Although man instinctively loves life because it is a good, this love will find further inspiration and strength, and new breadth and depth, in the divine dimensions of this good. Similarly, the love which every human being has for life cannot be reduced simply to a desire to have sufficient space for self-expression and for entering into relationships with others. Rather, it develops in a joyous awareness that life can become the place where God manifests himself, where we meet him and enter into communion with him. The life which Jesus gives in no way lessens the value of our existence in time. It takes it and directs it to its final destiny. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Let us pray. O Mary, bright dawn of the new world, mother of the living, to you do we entrust the cause of life. Look down, O mother, upon the vast numbers of babies not allowed to be born, of the poor whose lives are made difficult, of men and women who are victims of brutal violence, of the elderly and the sick, killed by indifference or out of misguided mercy. Grant that all who believe in your Son may proclaim the gospel of life with honesty and love to the people of our time. Obtain for them the grace to accept that gospel as a gift ever new, the joy of celebrating it with gratitude through their lives, and the courage to bear witness to it resolutely, 
in order to build, together with all people of goodwill, the civilization of truth and love, to the praise and glory of God, the creator and lover of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.